Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be getting to that text a little bit later on. I'm going to be needing your help this morning as we launch this lesson. If you have ever had the wonderful experience of locking your keys in the car, would you please raise your hand? Wow. Just for curiosity's sake, if you've driven a car and you've never locked your keys in the car, would you raise your hand? I'm guessing you floss your teeth every day, too. Can you believe that? Now, last question. How many of you have actually locked your keys in the car with it running? We're just sad, aren't we? That happened to one Wisconsin woman who was baking cookies for vacation Bible school and she ran into the store for a missing ingredient. She put some cookies into the oven actually to bake before she even left the house because she knew she'd just be right back. As she entered the store, she left the car running, ran in, got her extra butter that she needed, came back out, and she had locked the keys in the car. And she just folded over the hood and said, Oh, Lord, I am such a mess. I am so crazy. Would you please, please help me? No sooner had she said the word help me when all of a sudden a Subaru pulled up right next to her. Classic beater. Old, run down, looked like it could barely hold itself together, let alone move. And out stepped this rough, tough looking guy. Dreadlocks, tattoos, earrings. He was tough looking. And without hesitating, she said, young man, would you happen to have a coat hanger on you? I've locked my keys in the car. He said, yes, ma'am, I never go anywhere without it. <laughs> he walked to the trunk, pulled it out, bent it this way, bent it that way, slid it in her window, and in less than 30 seconds had that door open. She said, oh, young man, you're good. What do you do for a living? He said, well, I haven't found a job yet. I just got out of prison. <laughs> she said, really? Here's $20 to help you get started. Do you mind me asking what you went to jail for? He said, no, ma'am, Grand Theft Auto. She got into her car and she looked at him and said, Lord, thank you so much for hearing my prayers and responding so quickly. And thanks for sending a professional. <laughs> Glad you're here this morning. And I want you to know if you walked in here and you don't feel good enough to be here. I want you to know that standing before you is a professional at that. And I mean that with all my heart. All my life I have struggled with not feeling good. And if I don't care whether I've been speaking to a, a group of 40 or a group of 400 or a group of 4,000. Every time I stand up here to speak to you, please understand this. I never feel good enough. Greg will tell you the same thing. There's just something so majestic about the fact of God. And there's something so valuable about you. That you never, ever feel good enough to come up and speak as the oracles of God, Peter asks us to do. I never feel good enough. And I share any of that with you. Because I think I know very well there are many of you in here just like me who struggle with ever feeling like you do enough to please them. That anything that you do always is subpar, just quite doesn't measure up. Some of you. Expend huge amounts of time, effort, and energy doing and going and pushing and this all for the kingdom, trying to keep him pleased. 
And you get to the end of the week and you're exhausted and you feel further from God than when you started on Monday. Others of you feel so far from any godliness as far as a thought or an action. You've just resigned yourself to being the problem child of the family. You haven't been able to get it right for years and you doubt you ever will. And you are so tired of failing and being ashamed for failing, you just do not bother anymore. Thank you. You can relate completely to me when I say, I don't feel good enough to be here. Because you can't remember the last time you ever felt good enough to do anything. I want to share something with you this morning about God's grace and power that I believe is going to speak to at least one of you's heart because God has set you up. He brought you specifically here this morning because he knew you didn't feel good enough and he wants you to understand you will never feel good enough. But he has a message for you that I know is going to connect with your heart and it is going to give you hope and it's going to cause you to do some things in your life you have never thought about before. And I want you to know right up front who's responsible and I want you to know who's not. I'm not. If that happens, he did it, not me. I'm not good enough. Never will be good enough. But my friend, he is. Well, Jimmy, why exactly are you saying you don't feel good enough? Here's why. Because when I look inside my heart, Here's what I see. I know how undisciplined I can be. I know how faithless I can be, prayerless I can be, how self-centered I can be. I know how materialistic and prideful I can be. I know how lustful I can be. I know how mean I can be. I know me. But I love these next two words. But God, but God if you read his story over and over from chapter to chapter, cover to cover, you're going to find out he takes weak, broken, not very good enough people, sinful people, and he does the craziest good things with them. And that helps me some. But I still don't feel like I'm good enough. And I love it when God helps someone see he can use that. I love it. I, I think we all love it when, we, when someone can see something that was discarded or dysfunctional or, or used up or broken, and they can take that and they can see past what it is to what it can be, and it becomes something incredible. When they take that vision and they combine it with some, some painstaking labor and some time and some energy, and all of a sudden something that was useless becomes useful. Something that was broken becomes restored. I love that. I love that when they do it with a junker piece of furniture or a junker house or a junker car. Let me give you a couple examples that I found on the Internet that I think are kind of fun. The first is a filing cabinet. The top part of that looks like something that ought to go into a dump, right? But don't you love it when someone can take that and then with that vision and with some effort turn it into what's on the bottom? What's ready for the dump can go into the garage and, 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 and corral all those things. You don't have a clue where they're supposed to go. I love that. Here's the next one. Someone took this old beater car on the left that probably all of us would love to have, even in the beater condition, but then they turned it into this show rod that we'd love to go pay some money to go to a, a show and just see those things. I love it when someone can do the before and turn it into the after. And I love this with my wife does this. You take that old looking kind of Brady Bunch house and turn that into something that you'd want to move into tomorrow. Boring. 
probably has all kinds of roaches in the top, and then they do something with it in the bottom. How do they do that? Well, talk to my wife. That's what she loves to do. And I love this one here. This one is a picture of my wife's old Schwinn bicycle. All right? And a good buddy of mine, John Duncan, loves bicycling. Uh, not only does he love bicycling, but he had his own shop for a while. He was our youth minister, our associate minister, and now is the preaching minister at the Gateway Church of Christ in Rio Dessa. Great, great friend of mine. But before he left, he said, I want to do your wife a favor. Have her bring over her mom's old swim bicycle. I'd like to do something with it. And that's what he did. That's what it looked like, and this is what it looks like now. I love it when people can do that. John's a professional. And I just want you to remember this morning, amazing things happen in the hands of a professional. Now, God is a professional. What John could do with a bike, listen to me, church, God does with people. With people. I love that the Bible is full of this truth. God loves restoring things. Let me give you a couple examples real quick. Remember Pharaoh's cupbearer in Genesis chapter 40 and verse 21? A man who both filled Pharaoh's glass to make sure that he had enough also tasted that to see if it had poison in it. And for some reason, he loses his job, winds up in jail. And while he's there, Joseph interprets a dream for him. And before he knows it, here's what the text says. God restores him, the chief cupbearer, to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. I love it when God helps a man who's lost his employment have that restored. The Bible says God does that. In 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 14, not only does he help people restore their employment, he also helps them with their health. An army commander contracts leprosy, a horrible, horrible skin disease that leads to death. But along the way, it leads to a lot of embarrassment and shame and isolation from people. And this great army commander contracts this disease and he hears that Elijah the prophet can heal him. And so he goes to ask him. And Elijah gives him a couple of things to do, but they're a little beneath him. And at first he says, no way. And then I guess the thought of living with leprosy was, you know, not near as strong as doing a few humiliating things. And we read in the text here, so he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was, listen to the word, restored. And he became clean like that of a young boy. God restores employment. He restores health. He restores property. In 1 Samuel 7 and verse 14, it says the towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. <laughs> One of the great restoration projects of all of the Bible was Job. Bless his heart, his middle name was disaster, wasn't it? Everything, anything that could happen to a human being seems to happen to him. His family is lost to terrorists as well as tornadoes. So are his livestock. Even his health is taken from him. I mean, the guy literally says, I wished I weren't even born because he's been sick for so long and it's so humiliating and so painful. We're not talking days. We're not talking weeks. We're not talking months. We don't know how long Job was sick. But finally, in Job 42 and verse 10, we read, The Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. He gave it to him all back, but double. God loves to do that. Two more, three more. He likes to restore sanity. 
Some of you parents who think you've lost it, listen in. He likes to restore sanity. He did it for Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar had gotten a little haughty. No, he'd gotten a lot of haughty. Very prideful, thinking all that he was responsible for and all that he was authoritative over, he was uh, the big dude, the big kahuna. And God says, let's just see who is. And so he went into a field and ate grass like a cow and had these incredibly long fingernails and toenails until finally he came to his senses. Then it says, Daniel 4, verse 34 says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards the heavens, and my sanity was restored. Jesus restores a leprous hand in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 13. The Bible says, And when he did so, it was completely restored just as sound as another. He made, his eye, made eyes new in Mark chapter 8 and verse 25. Once more, the Bible says Jesus put his hands on this man's eyes and then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. I have gone a little bit overboard here on purpose because I wanted you to understand something. God just doesn't do a little restoration. He loves restoring things. He loves renewing things. He loves resurrecting things that were, remember that old bike? It, it could barely stand up, let alone be ridden. This one can be ridden. God loves doing what John can do with a bicycle. He loves doing that with people. He restores things. I know because he did it with my marriage. He did it with my marriage. Just as that cupbearer or that commander of the armies of Aram or Nebuchadnezzar or Mark or Matthew or Peter could say these words that were read a few moments ago, I am an eyewitness of his majesty. That's just not Bible to me. It is life for me. I, church, am an eyewitness of his majesty. Before I tell you the story, I'm going to ask you to stop and pray with me, please, because I'm going to need God's help with this, because I'm not good enough to do this. Father in heaven, first of all, I ask you to help my mouth just relax, get some liquid in it. You know I'm not good enough for this. I'm asking with all my heart today that you help us hear from you. That you are a God who restores and loves doing it. Father, I, I, I want to share our story. But I need your help. I know I'm not the only one who needs to hear that you continue to restore things. Father, we pray for the Church of the Hills. We know that that family of disciples wants desperately to know that you are alive and working in this world through your word, through the spirit, through the church. Please help them. Bless them, Father, as they meet today to lift up your holy name and to remember together they're not good enough, but you are. Please, Father, help us to walk out of here this morning realizing both of those truths, those tremendous truths that in conjunction together can do mighty things. We ask this humbly in Jesus' name and everyone said. On December 29th, 1999, I stood before my congregation to preach what I thought would be the last sermon as a preaching minister for the Gateway Church of Christ in Ruidosa, New Mexico. While most of the world was worried about Y2K, remember Y2K? <laughs> they were worried about whether their computers and power grids were going to fail. I was wondering if my marriage was going to fail. It seemed like the last of my life as I knew it then was about to come to an agonizing end. I was resigning because I couldn't preach and live in a dying marriage another week. Gail and I had given our best efforts for over, hear me clearly, five years 
to restore our marriage to a level of just comfortableness. Just a place where we could get along. And I'm telling you, nothing worked. Walter and Fran Becker were our marriage counselors for six months. They had a very unique ministry in the sense that they only handled ministers and parachurch leaders and their wives. That's all they ever counseled were troubled marriages in the ministry. They happened to live in Rodosa, New Mexico. They helped hundreds of people keep their marriages together. They didn't seem to help us much at all. We attended a His Needs, Her Needs conference put on by the folks at Family Dynamics with Joe Beam. It too has helped hundreds, if not thousands of marriages hang on to one another and make it through. We wished it could have helped ours. We tried separation. It gave us both a break from the stress of a bad marriage, but it didn't seem to help as much as far as reconciling on any level. And listen to me clearly, it was brutal on our children. And so on December 29th, after five years of prayer and counseling and waiting, I was quitting preaching, thinking maybe the pressures of being in the ministry might be the cause of our demise. Maybe, just maybe, life outside the fishbowl would infuse new life into our marriage or in the least. I thought if this thing was not going to come out of the death spiral that it was in, a divorce would be easier on our church from the pew rather than from the pulpit. And so I opened Sportsman's Taxidermy Meat Processing. Guy's got to work, got to feed his family somehow. So I took a hobby, turned it into a business by God's grace. It was successful. But our hopes to release some stress and to have our marriage reconciled weren't. And so after a year, I moved out. And nine months later, I filed for divorce. And on September the 28th, 2001, that divorce was final. It is so hard for me to believe from where I am now that anything good could come out of such hurt, such disillusionment, such brokenness. But Jesus was absolutely right, church, when he says this, what is impossible with man is absolutely possible with God. Please know that. Before I go any further, I'm fully aware that there are some marriages that when all is said and done at the end of time are going to be stamped irredeemable. I know that. But it is not the end of time, and all has not been said and done. And so listen to me clearly. Anyone who is struggling to hang on to your marriage in this moment. Because I believe with all of my heart, God did something in that dead marriage that you need to hear. It started on Tuesday night at 1030 10.30 at night, there was a knock at the door. I went over and I answered it, and there stood my first wife in a sweater and pajamas. Straight up the truth. She asked if we could talk, and I said, well, now's not a good time. Brenda's here. She said, okay, I'll wait. <laughs> She's a persistent woman. I said, can't this wait until the morning? She said, no, for some reason it has to be now. I said, why does it have to be now? She said, well, I don't want to sound overly dramatic, but God will not let me go to sleep until I tell you what I need to say tonight. It has to be tonight? Yes. Well, Brenda left. 
Gail said, all this may be too late, but I'm going to get straight to the point. Yesterday, Tabitha, our youngest, and I were waiting at the stoplight. And you and Brenda pulled up behind us. And Tabitha noticed your pickup. And she turned to look out the window and wave. And I could tell she wasn't waving at you. She was waving at somebody else. Gail said, I don't know how to explain it, but in that moment, I felt a darkness come over me, and all I knew was that Satan was taking the very last of my life from me. He was stealing my marriage. He was stealing my health. And now he was stealing my girls. And she said, in that moment, something like scales fell from my heart. She said, I cannot explain it, but the bitterness left and the anger left at every healthy, good, godly emotion. I have so longed to have reawakened over the last five years, woke up. Everything that I hoped would come back came back in an instant. And I spent the last two days trying to figure this thing out, crying my eyes out. I've not been to work. The girls think I've gone over the end. I may have gone over the end. But I've come to tell you my feelings have returned and to ask you if it's not too late. Could we try again? She said, before you say anything, I need to let you know something. I made a mistake with someone and I sexually sinned. Largely, if you can believe it, because I thought it would give you the scriptural grounds for a divorce and we wouldn't have to keep struggling in a failed marriage another day. I didn't know what to say. When I finally did speak, I said, well, I've got something to tell you. Tomorrow morning, Brenda and I are scheduled to go get a marriage license in Roswell, New Mexico, and the judge is going to marry us. She said, why so fast? And why aren't you telling anybody? I said, well, since we're being honest, number one, I didn't want to hear about all the warnings about a rebound marriage so soon. And number two, so that the sex wouldn't be sinful anymore. Bill said, well, I guess it's too late and started to walk out the door. I told her, I said, no, wait a minute. I said, I didn't say it was too late. I just said your timing stinks. And then I said to her, the only fleece I ever laid before God after our divorce was this. I said, God, I don't have the strength to stay in this marriage for you. I don't have the strength to stay in this marriage for the kids. I will not stay in this marriage just because it's the right thing to do for the church or anybody. But I will give this a second shot if her heart changes. And I could see in my wife's eyes that night, church, I'm telling you the truth, something drastic changed and peace like I'm not sure I have ever experienced before or after flooded that room in that moment I said this is a lot to take it in one day and there's somebody else involved now could I have a few days to think about it and pray about it and she said sure well Friday came and I couldn't do it I called her and I said, I I can't get the girl's hopes up that trying is going to bring, only to have it just simply crash and burn one more time. That would be a nightmare for them and us. I don't want to do that. I don't have another try in me. Next morning, Saturday, Gail calls and she says, I want to come by and apologize to you and Brenda. I said, you don't have to do that. She says, yes, I do. 
She walked in. She said, could we, could we talk? I said, sure. She apologized first to Brenda, then to me, and said, but I really do need to talk with you. We went back to my, my studio, and she said, um, tomorrow morning I'm going before our entire church to let them know everything. When it's over, they ought to see our divorce in a little bit different light. I never meant for any of this to happen, especially to keep you from preaching. And this ought to let you get to do that at least somewhere, sometime in the future. I said, is going public with this necessary? She said, yes. I said, don't do this for me. She said, I'm not. She said, I'm doing this because God has asked me to go public so that I can move on. And Satan cannot be in charge of this one more day in the darkness. Now, most of you don't have a clue who my wife is yet. Yet. But you will learn very quickly she is a very private person. And I knew that for her to do this meant something incredibly radical had taken place. And it wouldn't let me go. Here's what happened the next day, Sunday. I was supposed to lead worship in Artesian, New Mexico. I wasn't preaching at the time, and I'd been asked to take our worship team down to Artesian, New Mexico, and to lead a worship service there. And when I woke up that morning, I'm telling you, like I'm standing here, I knew I wasn't supposed to go. I knew it. I was about to pick up the phone and call someone and let them know that when the phone rang itself, and it was Brenda, and she said, listen, I've been through one of the worst weeks of my life. When Gail left yesterday, you weren't the same. I need to know, is this over? Because I don't want to do this anymore. And at that exact moment... Another knock, early in the morning, 6.30, before the sun's even up. It was Paul Wetzel, the guy who was going to sing bass for the worship team. And he comes in and says, Jimmy, I'm not going to be able to go with you this morning because God's done something in Gail's heart and we want to be here for that. She came by our house last night and unfolded for us all that's been going on. And he said, I don't know how you're taking this, but Jimmy, I, I think God's giving you back your marriage. And I said, I think he is too, but I don't know what to do next. And the phone rang. I said, I know who that's going to be, and that's someone that I, I'm not sure that I can talk to by myself. He walked over with me beside my desk at the office and got down on his knees and listened to me. He started praying out loud for me to be strong in the strength of God's might, that this battle belonged to the Lord. It was Brenda. And she was asking a question. I need to know. And I said, I have an answer for you. I said, I think God's given me back my marriage. I've got to give it another try. And I hung up. And Paul left. I got on the phone one more time, and I called Gail. And I couldn't speak. All I could do was just sob into the phone. She recognized the tears and said, Jimmy? <laughs> I said, yes, it's me. She said, come home. And I did. Went home, picked her up, went and had her and Cheryl's at Chef Loopy's. And then we went to Gateway that morning to worship. And hear me clearly, all heaven broke loose. All heaven broke loose. The songs that were selected that morning by John had to have been selected by God himself. Listen to the words. Bring Christ your broken life, so marred by sin. He will create anew and make whole again. Your empty, wasted years He will restore. And your iniquities remember no more. 
Another song, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. And then this last one that came right after the lesson. He is able, more than able, to accomplish what concerns me today. He is able, more than able, to do much more than I could ever dream. He is able, more than able, to make me what he wants me to be. Gail had her statement read by one of the elders as he stood with his arm around her. And it spelled out clearly decisions that she had made that she was ashamed of, finishing by saying, I need a fresh start and I need you to make that with me. When she finished reading, I couldn't stay in my seat another moment. I didn't come there for me that day. I came there for her. But I'm telling you, I walked to the front and I stood next to her and I stepped up to the mic and I said, I want this church to know I too have been involved in sexual sin sin that I'm ashamed of. That's broken God's heart and I know has broken yours. I need your forgiveness and I want a fresh start. I don't know what that looks like. But I want to start over today alongside my wife. In church, eight hours later that night, I asked Gail Sportsman to marry Jimmy Sportsman. And she said yes. And the next day, we went to Roswell. And we secured a marriage license. And we found a judge. And the marriage was remade in heaven. On August the 21st, 1982, I married my first wife. And on November the 5th, 2001, I married my first wife again. And rumor has it she really likes her second husband. (laughs) I really like my second wife. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate 31 years of marriage with a little asterisk on it, minus six weeks. And the point I want to make is this. That was an incredible wound in my life. A self-inflicted, Jimmy-responsible wound. I allowed my wife to emotionally starve to death. I pursued my ministry and my hobbies with greater zeal than I pursued her. I was the one who walked, not her. I was the one who broke my promise to my children, not her. And I lost everything. I lost my marriage. I lost my family. I lost my career. I lost my home. Everything that was a part of me other than God himself, I lost But God, who restores broken things, who gives life to lifeless things, who resurrects dead things, but God stepped in the midst of my hurt and my pain and said, I'm good enough. You're not. But I am. And praise God that he is. And I don't know about you guys, but we have been in the book, and for the last seven weeks, this is the end of an eight-week series for those of you who are visiting with us. We've been in this looking at some things that have caused us to say, if not out loud, at least, God did what? He spoke, he rested, he ran, he searched, he celebrated, he whistled, he lavished. And this week I want you to see he restored. And he restores. All of these things that we've looked at are not just some history lessons about what he did. It's pointing us to who he is and what he does. 
And I, I'm just telling you the truth. I can, I can only read so many Bible stories to get me up and get me excited that I too could experience God in my life. Every now and then, I need to hear He's doing it. And that's why I'm here to tell you our story. Because He's still doing it. I am an eyewitness of His majesty. That what is dead, He still raises. What is hopeless, He still gives hope to. Because He loves to restore. He's a professional. And great things happen in the hands of a professional. And you're wondering, would He do that for me? And I want you to hear me clearly. I know this is being taped. Yes. Yes. He will restore what is dead in your life. He will restore what is broken in your life. He will restore what is absolutely upside down in your life. And I'll give you this word on that specifically in a moment. Do not take my opinion on that. But you listen closely to this word we're about to read in a moment. He will restore it. That's what he does. You bring him broken things, he heals them. Here's the problem. Two things are required. Number one, confessing you're not good enough. Now, for some of you, you're going, really? That's the first half of a two-part equation? Yes. Well, I qualify. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. But there's some folks in here who don't. Because you think you're good enough. You do. You almost think you're doing God a favor by even being here this morning. While the rest of us drag ourselves in here not quite sure we're good enough for anything. He can't do much with you. But the rest of you, those of you who don't feel like you're good enough, listen to me. It's a prerequisite to get into the family. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they're the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're there this morning, good news. You need to start by not feeling good enough and admitting it. Naaman swallows his pride. He doesn't want to go dip in the, na- dip, deep, dip in the nasty Jordan River seven times. No way. That's beneath him. He's good enough. Until he finally goes and he dips in the nasty Jordan River seven times and finds out God's good enough, not name it. Job's restoration. You're going to want to write this one down. Go back and read Job's chapter 42 and verse 10. His restoration comes at a unique time. It comes on the heels of him beginning to pray for his friends, not argue with them, not look down his nose at them. But the text says, when Job began to pray for his friends, God gave him everything back. Hmm. Peter has Jesus walk into his boat. Interesting, the catch of his life happens when? After he says, I'm not good enough. Just been fishing all night long. We didn't catch a thing. Interesting. A Syrophoenician woman comes to him. She's got a daughter who's deathly sick. She doesn't ask for a seat at the Lord's table. She said, I'll just settle for the crumbs. I'm not good enough. And guess what? She gets exactly what she wants. God takes this humility things seriously. And I don't think we think he does. But I want you to know this. If he's going to touch and restore something in your life, it starts with you understanding. You're not good enough. And we aren't. One of the things that I learned even this week in preparing to tell you guys this story 
I was so full of pride all during that time of trying to fix our marriage. And God helped me to see that. That even the times when we were all messed up, God was saying, you kept thinking you were good enough. If you, if you, counsel, you went to this counselor or if you prayed this way or if you went to this seminar, you would be good enough then for me to fix your marriage or you would have done enough for me to fix it. Jimmy, you're not good enough. I had my life that I was thrilled to live and that marriage fit in there somewhere and it wasn't right. I needed to get that thing fixed so I could get on with my life. God's not going to work in a person who thinks those kind of things. I didn't know that I was doing it intentionally, but God helped me to see this week I was. I thought I was good enough. As a matter of fact, I remember exactly saying these words in our fellowship hall one day. God has to restore this marriage. We've done everything that we know to do. We have prayed. We have gone to counseling. We have done um, seminars. We have waited. We've given it time. He has to heal that marriage. Do you hear pride in there like I do? It wasn't until I realized that I wasn't good enough and that every time God gives me anything, it's only because he's good enough that I got my marriage back. Point number two, he is good enough. Now I'm talking to some of you who walked in here this morning and you're feeling like all I've got is I'm not good enough. Well, sorry. In order for you to see him restore broken things in your life, you have got to believe he's good enough and step out in faith and ask him to heal you. Heal that relationship with your teenager. Heal that addiction that you have walked around with. Oh, you're too good to go to a 12-step program? Really? Sorry, you're not good enough. Oh, oh, you're, you're too good to go to seven sessions of counseling? Because you're, you're the man, you know everything? Sorry, you're not good enough. God may be asking you to do that. You come to him with any prerequisites or things that, that, that okay, now here's my conditions, Lord. Wrong! Wrong. It didn't work that way. You come realizing you're not good enough and that he is good enough and great things start to happen. Here's the word of the Lord for that. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Now, some of you, are, I know, are thinking, wow, he sure is assuring a lot here. No, I'm assuring everything that God says here. You bring him, you're not good enough, and you come proclaiming he is good enough. He will restore you. I don't know what time frame that's going to be in, but he will. When I first got to know this church, it was because my sister was in the midst of the throes of cancer. And I begged her, I begged him, please restore her. And we left it open-ended to say, any way you want to, God. And he chose to restore her by taking her home. And you know what? I think my sister's probably a lot more thrilled seeing the face of the Son of Christ in some clear CAT scan. Just a thought. She's thrilled where she's at right now. So yay, God! Because there was a time in her life when she came to realize she wasn't good enough and that the cross was where Jesus made her good enough and she accepted that was immersed in a baptistry just like this so that those sins were washed away so she could be good enough in God's eyes through Christ and His death. There was a time that when that took place, so now she's in heaven forever. Yay, God! And you know what? It may not be that God restores some of the things that you want restored until you get there. 
I'm sorry. But it's in his timing, not mine. And he's always right. He's pretty good at this restoring thing. Because he's good. Not just talented, he's good. And because he's father and he's good, he's going to do everything in my life that is good for me. I can trust him. So here's my hope. That somebody here today will set up. Someone walked in here knowing they're not good enough. And they just needed a little bit of a nudge to remember, oh, but he is. And if that describes you, would you come find me or one of our elders? Because I want to tell you right up front, I've gotten to know these guys. They're not good enough. They're not. And they're getting to know me, and they realize I'm not good enough. But we stand on behalf of the one who is to speak Jesus' mighty name over whatever's broken in your life, trusting that 1 Peter 5 is exactly the truth. Now, I don't know where you're getting your truth from. If it's not from God, then I'm going to put them all in one lump category, amateurs. Amateurs. About how to handle restoring a relationship with your teenager, breaking free from an addiction, getting your marriage back together, finding employment, uh, being healed from cancer. If you're getting your cues from any place but the holy word of God, amateurs. But I am telling you the truth. Amazing things happen in the hands of a professional. And this professional created this world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm calling you. I'm inviting you. Come get you some. Because he's good enough. He's good enough. He's good enough. The question is, are you desperate enough? And do you believe he really is? And we're going to sing a song that was one of the songs that we sang that morning when all heaven broke loose. I don't know what God's going to do here today, but I'm hoping something happens that somebody says, I believe he's enough. I'd love to pray with you. If someone's finally, that's all I need to do to be baptized? Yes. I'm not good enough? He is. That's all. If that's you, come find me this morning. But in the hands of a professional, a life gets restored. So bring your broken one while we stand and while we sing.